Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the poison path, um, what it is, maybe some misunderstandings that people have about it, talk about the use of poison in current modern medicine and how it was used historically, as well as touching upon it from a spiritual perspective. But before we get into that, we can do our What Happened on This Day, and I will go ahead and take this one. In 1865, Polish-German uh, physician, neurologist, and embryologist Robert Remock died. And he actually discovered the fibers of Remock in 1830, followed by non-metallated nerve fibers in 1838. And this is what I found particularly interesting. He named the three germ layers discovered in the early embryos, so the ectoderm, the mesoderm, and the endoderm. And then later in 1844, he discovered that nerve cells, well, he discovered the nerve cells in the heart, now known as Remach's ganglia, and he provided the first illustration of the six-layered cortex. And with all of these discoveries in the world of neuroscience, it should come as no surprise then that he was also the pioneer of using electrotherapy for the treatment of nerve diseases, like nervous diseases. I thought that was really interesting and rather fitting for our discussion today. I think the first question that maybe we should answer is, what is a poison and why do they exist? So basically poisons exist in nature to as usually as a protective mechanism. Not always, but um, they are usually to protect the creature or plant from something that doesn't want to eat it. Although there are cases where the uh, plants which produce compounds which are not um, intentionally toxic to the person who to the person who ingests it. Key to this episode is that there's a difference between venoms and poisons. A venom is a to- toxin which is uh, it's intended to be kind of predatory, so it's injected into its target. Whereas a poison is just any toxin that leads to harm through ingestion. And in theory. Anything can be poisonous when it's ingested in large enough amounts, but poisons specifically usually refer to a compound which uh, has quite universally toxic effects on um, mammals. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting because, in a, this is kind of off base, but I just wanted to mention it. In a chemical context, um, a poison is something that decreases the effectiveness of a catalyst in a reaction. So, for instance, if you were to put EDTA, which is a metal uh, chelating agent, into a reaction catalyzed by, by magnesium, EDTA in this case would be considered a poison because it would decrease the catalytic activity of, in this case, probably an enzyme, um, a magnesium-requiring enzyme. And I personally really like this understanding of poison quite a lot because, spiritually speaking, I think it offers a perspective outside of the classical definition where we think of poison in the realm of plants rather than maybe alternative contexts that could also be applied in. So then let's maybe, since we've defined what a poison is, let's talk about the poison path. So when we when we say poison path, what exactly do we mean here? Like, is it a particular tradition? Is it maybe just part of multiple traditions? I think the use of poison has been pretty extensive throughout um, different areas of the occult. Um, so pharmakos is a Greek word which we get our term pharmacology from. And Latin uh, venethicium um, also refers to the use of poisonous plants. Although in some cases it can just refer to the use of plants themselves. It's um, it's a little bit dicey as to which one is used where. Um, so although poisonous plants have been used in lots and lots of different occult traditions, and I'm kind of curious to know what um, examples you guys can think of just off the top of your head, the specific term poison path um, seems to come from an author called Dale Pendle, who wrote a series of books, um, they're prefaced with the, sorry, they're prefaced with uh, Pharmaco um, in the mid-90s to uh, noughties. So what, what comes into your head first when you when you think like poison path or poison, use of poisons? I usually think immediately of like flying ointments. Pretty much, yeah, immediately. Yeah, I'm the same way. I think about like poisonous herb and like flying ointments and all of these typically the use of herbs in a more baneful sense which I think is actually kind of what the poison path is but a distinction that I want to make is that the poison path can be both beneficial and harmful it's not simply just um bad and I kind of think that um demonization of of the poison path came from 
maybe rules that begin to be structured around um, like witchcraft and different practices where like you shouldn't do anything to harm people. And so the poison path was was demonized in a sense as this thing that you shouldn't go down or, or participate or engage in, even though that side of plants is it's it's part of a whole right like light is not light without dark and kind of in the same regard with the poison path you can't have healing without also having poison they go hand in hand and so when one when one wants to like study herbalism or the poison path or anything similar to that i think it's important to understand both sides of the equation um just as like you wouldn't only pay attention to god's like chthonic things versus um god's like above right you would focus on both the above and below because together they make a whole. So I think the the demonization of the poison path over time has really been unfortunate because I think it's separated people from maybe these Catholic spirits and the plant spirits that actually have more uses than simply baneful magic. But instead the poison path was labeled as this like, you only engage if you intend to harm when that's not necessarily, I think, the entire point of the poison path. From like a, a purely like medical perspective or like this would be like early early medical um a lot of like um diuretics not the right word Anti- they not ne- they weren't antidotes but sometimes it's like if you had eaten or consumed something that was like very harmful to you you would consume something else that would then basically make you vomit up whatever you had eaten which is obviously not normally a good thing but in that case um it, it would have been yeah, I find it I find it really interesting because obviously like you guys jump straight to flying ointments and me too when we think of poison path, even though there are loads and loads of different traditions that do utilize poison. Um, I think we'll be focusing a lot on traditional witchcraft um, and flying ointments though in this episode. But I thought it was interesting because its association with trad witchcraft is kind of historically, uh, it's a little bit interesting like how we got here um, and, and where we got these associations. Like it, it's thought of as kind of an ancient tradition and maybe that's not necessarily the case but um we'll get into that a little bit later but certainly it is associated with traditional witchcraft um even robert cochrane who's a founder of one strain of traditional witchcraft actually died by the use of belladonna although um there's controversial as to whether this was suicide or unintentional again what's so fascinating to me about the poison path is that people associate with the negative light but again like these plants that are labeled dangerous um and even animals, actually, it's not just plants, plants and animals, can actually be beneficial in many ways. So kind of moving the discussion more towards maybe modern medicine for a bit, there are a couple of examples um, that fall into this category. And one is the Pacific yew. So the Pacific yews, um, the seeds, leaves, and barks are all highly poisonous to humans. But in the 1960s, researchers from the National Cancer, Cancer Institute discovered that the bark contained toxin, um, that could be harnessed on a cellular level to inhibit the progression of some cancers. And this actually led to the synthesis of a paclitaxel, which is a drug that's now used to treat breast, lung, and some other cancers, in addition to an AIDS-related um, sarcoma. And there's a couple of examples. I have like a whole list that I can run through. So there was a diabetes drug um, called exenatide, which lowers blood sugar and increases your natural production of insulin. And that's a synthetic version of a component in the saliva of large venomous lizards found in the U.S. and Mexico. Have the classic example that everybody talks about, which is the opium poppy. And that led to the uh, development of potent medicine for chronic pain, um, including codeine and morphine. Some anticoagulants, um, namely tyrophobin and um, heridin, were derived from the blood thinning venom of the African soft-billed viper and also leeches, respectively. And then the first oral angiotensin converting enzyme, which is known as colloquially as the ACE inhibitor, was based actually on the mechanism of how the venom of the Brazilian pit viper caused a drastic drop in blood pressure in its prey. And a favorite of mine, actually, is the conotoxins, which are bioactive peptides that are found in the venom, specifically of marine cone snails. And this venom is produced for prey capture and defense. But over 10,000 sequences um, recently, within about the last decade or so, have been discovered using mostly mass spectrometry and a couple of other techniques. And it's allowing us to currently visualize pain receptors in cells and the pathways that are associated with this, which is really, really important because studying pain currently in modern science is very difficult to do. 
And so by being able to like actually visually study this, it's allowing us to treat chronic pain disorders as well as neurological disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. There's plenty of kind of instances where these poisons and toxins have led to the development of incredibly useful drugs we were able to base off of these mechanisms. And I think that sheds light onto maybe the alternative use of the poison path, which is that it's not just dangerous. I mean, it is dangerous. Like, obviously, (laughs) please be careful when you engage in it. But it has its use in healing in addition to harming. So I have a question. We know that the poison path is typically associated with traditional witchcraft, but do you think that association has maybe led to some misconceptions of traditional witchcraft and like what it's actually used for? Like, what do you think any misconceptions are that maybe surround it because of this association? I think there are a lot of misconceptions, firstly, because some of it comes from closed traditions. So there are closed branches of um, sabbatic witchcraft, which um, obviously, like, you're not going to know about that because it's initiatory. Um, And secondly, uh, there there are a lot of misconceptions about the origin of these ointments. Like, we'll kind of go into it a little bit later, but there's this idea that these are, like, these were historically used for shamanic journeying or kind of communing with plant spirits and the historical evidence for that isn't necessarily that strong and that doesn't mean that these aren't valid and that these aren't like really integral to the tradition but I think the word traditional in there like implies that it's really ancient really old and actually a lot of it is a lot more contemporary than we think right like my understanding of traditional witchcraft and I am not um I don't know all that much about traditional witchcraft, but I believe that it it sort of looks at like what I put in a a quote from Daniel Shulk, who um, I believe was the founder of Sabbatic witchcraft. So he said that Sabbatic craft describes a corpus of magical practices which self-consciously utilize the imagery and mythos of the witch's Sabbath as a cipher of ritual teaching and gnosis. So a lot of trad craft, especially Sabbatic craft, look at the discourse surrounding the witch trials, not necessarily like a lot of people throw throw them out entirely. Um, but in sabbatic craft, you kind of read between the lines and also sometimes take it as yeah, like as the mythos for the tradition as well. I think it's really good a really good way of describing it, like mytho- mythos rather than fact. Yeah. Like I think that's actually a re- yeah, really really good way of um, of describing it um i also would say that daniel schultz um, has written a load of on poison path and um he's really really worth reading like i think he's one of the main sources that um i've read um and i'm glad that he's uh, felt willing to disclose some of um, his experiences i think the association between tradcraft and the poison path is really interesting because it also leads to the variation that we see within the poison path right like it's dependent upon what tradition you're following in in tradcraft because i think that can also have some variation in and of itself again i'm not a traditional like i don't really follow that path but this is from what i've you know gathered from talking to other tradcraft practitioners and that's what makes it really interesting is that you have all these different kind of sub types of traditional witchcraft that then have their own uses for different herbs and stuff that are important to their um specific rituals and spell works that they do and so that also means that the poison path in and of itself is not this like singular thing that it changes also depending upon location and um, tradition that you're following um, and even just your personal experiences. Because from what I've gathered, the poison path is very much so an animistic path in a way where you truly engage with the plant spirits and you let them kind of um, assist you in understanding what they do and how they can help or help well maybe in healing or harming one or the other and so it has this very much so kind of animistic feel to it i think too one of the misconceptions about poison path is that it's not um just physical like people communing like you talking about like an animistic perspective of with the plant spirits themselves without necessarily actually consuming or anointing yourself with the plant um I know some people will engage in the poison path, and which is obviously a safer way. But there are people who engage in the poison path via a more spiritual connection than like a literal, I'm going to consume this plant. I was going to say just like mandrake puppets and stuff, because a lot yes. of these things have like really historical, uh, they have, like for example, the mandrake root is shaped like a, a human baby. And so it makes a really good uh, puppet. 
Um, or you can even just use the shredded root for a puppet. So that would be like one spiritual way to um, engage with, with it without actually in, um, in ingesting the compound. Yeah, so this actually brings me to, to another question, which is that then how would you, what do you think separates the poison path specifically from just like normal herbalism? Because I think they're, I think they're intertwined in many ways. But there seems to be a distinction, um, and I'm curious what you think maybe that distinction comes from. I feel like, because, I mean, not all herbalists um, follow any path at all. Like, there are herbalists who are, like, not even witches, um, or, like, the, their spirituality is, is purely plants. Um, and, like, having that relationship with plants but I feel like a lot of people who are specifically poison path are very much into that side of things. Not necessarily like that they eschew all other plants or all, all other herbalism, but there seems to be, um, I mean, in order to do the poison path, right, you have to be very skilled. I think to me, that's sort of where the difference is, is, is that a lot of people who are like engaged with the poison path do it quite extensively with just the poison path and i feel like there's a lot more overlap with poison path and specifically tradcraft whereas herbalism has so many crossovers with so many different paths whereas i feel like poison path seems to line up the most with tradcraft and, and its offshoots yeah i think the difference for me is that the poison path seems to be more of a holistic in the sense of incorporating both the natural world of the plants with like the spiritual um incorporation from from tradcraft or really just spirituality in general it really it kind of brings both into the framework and allows people to have a more full kind of understanding of what's going on versus just looking at it from a natural perspective like i think you can work with plant spirits and allies as an herbalist but i think when you do it in the poison path there's more to it spiritually um than there is maybe from an from an herbalist perspective at least that's how i see it yeah i feel like this is a really hard question actually because it could be answered in lots and lots of different ways um i really encourage people if they're interested in this more to read um, dale pendle and daniel shulk because they've got some really fantastic books on this but i would say there is a lot to do with psychomagical journey journeying um, particularly, we mentioned journeying to the Sabbat, and we'll get uh, get to that um, in terms of Sabbatic craft. So a lot to do with plant allies, communing with plant spirits, and also um, learning and sort of the unmaking of the self. So there's a lot to do with kind of inner transformation, not just using plants for a specific goal. So, for example, in herbalism, you might you know use uh, something for a correspondence, or you might use it as medically, but you might use it to actually uh, transform oneself or even even just change change your mental states change your perspective it's 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 quite dramatic and it's quite involved i think in that way do you do either of you think that there's a past association with like entheogens and um psychedelics in a sense this idea of like engaging in the poison path to have visions or move to a trance state has maybe led to some of the more negative connotations surrounding the practice and also just the path itself yeah i think so and i mean obviously i, I don't th i don't think that necessarily people think of the baneful aspects like actually physically poisoning people <laughs> but i mean that historically was something that witches did um and i'm sure that that association still remains in people's minds to an extent or baneful things can also include like love filters for example and um so driving somebody into a frenzy, and I think that's definitely a negative association that um, many people would have. Yeah, I mean, for anything called the poison path, I think there's bound to be negative connotations to it. I think also whenever like something dangerous, I mean, anything in excess is dangerous, but poisons in uh, a normal amount are dangerous. So I think that too is where there can be... Um, some issues. I mean, I've heard so many stories of people who have had horrible experiences with the kinds of herbs that are associated with the poison path. So yeah, it's, it's easier to really hurt yourself with belladonna than it is with rosemary. In, in terms of the poison path, 
a lot of people think of it as just using poisons, which are botanical origin usually, to induce a transcendent state. That's not always the case. We kind of mentioned there are some baneful uses, so that might be a love potion to induce frenzy. Um, it might be psychometrical journeying. It might be in medicine of some sort. So I think you mentioned quite a lot of medicines are derived from poisons earlier. There is an idea within some poison path circles that poison is a medicine, and this can be viewed as in a kind of a spiritual sense. So it's a, um, a medicine to treat holistically, to treat the, the whole, or it, sometimes some people actually view it in a kind of more chemical sense. So the idea is that regular medicine treats the symptoms, whereas uh, poison path would treat the cause. And I don't agree with that at all. I think if you understand regular medicine, then uh, <laughs> that's just not true. But I do think maybe from a spiritual perspective, people people see it as, as healing in that way. Um, and then finally, there are some kind of controversial ideas in the, um, not regard, regarding tradecraft, but about the Eleusinian mysteries, which are obviously um, many, many, many controversies about this because um, uh, well understood as the, the name implies. But there is one idea that they were used in this context to induce a near-death experience. And this kind of come back, comes back to the idea of transformation. So having a near-death experience and experiencing a rebirth and that closeness to death allows you to a new, a new perspective, it um, allows you closer to the divine, etc. Again, that is a controversial idea, but I think that is an idea that is also perpetuated through other traditions because of this particular um, idea. So there's lots right. of different uses. I think too, when looking at like the poison path, especially, and I, we're going to get into like recipes, um, not to like go out and tell you what to do, but like what people were looking at. Um, and like we talked about the Eleusinian Mysteries briefly in our Antheogen episode where I basically was like, yeah, we don't know anything. Uh, and a lot of the like stuff about use of entheogens or, or inducing a near-death experience, a lot of that is especially controversial because that either comes from Christian sources or from a lot of Victorian sources where they were kind of going through a phase of, of applying everything to like fumes and, um, like ergot or whatever so there there is i think too the case of i mean like we see this with like maiden mother crone which has made an impression on modern spirituality even though the kind of scholarship behind it is dubious at best i think too with the poison path and flying ointments with the same thing not flying ointments but just like poison path in general i think the same thing can be said that a lot of the more modern scholarship is a bit (laughs) makes the older scholarship look a bit iffy but the influence is still there yeah, I think some people would argue flying omits as well, but well, uh, I, will, <laughs> I would also, I personally would also argue <laughs> flying omits, but we'll get into that, I guess. So then there, this begs a question, and being a, a chemist slash biochemist, this is kind of the thing that I love, <laughs> love talking about, um, which is how did people find the active ingredient of a compound? So how did they find kind of the toxin, the thing that makes something poisonous? And historically speaking, the answer is trial and error. Um, not the greatest or safest answer to give in the universe, but that's how a lot of it started. That's how a lot of medicines began. Um, even now we have to have clinical trials for medicines and, you know, treat people to see if they're actually efficacious and if they have side effects. Um, but the manipulation of plants to separate the plant matter from like a toxin or a poison allegedly dates far back to Egypt, where they were thought to have designed the first um, distillation apparatus. And that allowed them to distill poison from specifically apricot kernels um, was kind of the main thing that I found. And this makes sense because this distillation remains one of the simplest and easiest ways to separate different parts of a plant. In alchemy specifically, um, it remains the primary method for separation of the salt, mercury, and sulfur of a plant. And um, plant properties are actually often documented. So examples of this include Pliny's Natural History um, in 75 AD. The, um, the, I can't ever pronounce his name, literally. Theophrastus' Inquiry into Plants. Um, and then Dioscorides, did I pronounce that correctly? <laughs> Tamateria Medica in 50 AD. But again, these really didn't document the separation of compounds explicitly it was more based upon observation and kind of again trial and error so around 300 AD um, we also actually have record of the alchemist 
agathodamon, speaking of a mineral, that when mixed with a substance called natrin, produced what he described as, quote-unquote, a fiery poison. Now, this was actually later identified as arsenic trioxide, um, and it's now believed that the original mineral was either rilgar or orpiment. And what's so interesting about that is the arsenic trioxide was actually used to treat a number of things, and it led to chemical deaths all over the place, <laughs> um, which is pretty typical of medicine that occurred, you know, back in, in that time period. Medicinally speaking, cures were being found in poison as evidenced by the Persian physician, philosopher, and scholar, um, I think it's pronounced Raz, who um, wrote a particularly long text called The Secret of Secrets, which is really just a long list of a bunch of chemical compounds and minerals and apparatus that he used to separate these molecules that are toxic from the initial plant matter. And he was the first person to distill alcohol and use it as an antiseptic. And he was also the one who suggested using mercury as a laxative. Not actually a good idea. Please don't do that. And he also discovered what we now know as mercury chloride, a corrosive substance from which an ointment um, was derived that quote unquote cured um, scabies. And the reason actually it's interesting, the mechanism behind this is that mercury could penetrate the skin. And because it could do that, it would actually eliminate the itch by killing the tissue, um, leading to, again, this like chemical poisoning, chemical death. So not good medicine, but it was working at the time. So people thought it was good. Not the case. And that's actually pretty common for most of the alchemical elixirs and tonics that people were being given. They would be given it, not aware that there were like all of these toxic elements um, involved in it. And because it worked, people continued taking them. And that led to a lot of these chemical deaths that we now know because of like modern science. So again, because there were no available models to test these, the effects of these poisons on, humans often ended up being test subjects, much to their detriment. And in particular, during the poison craze of the medieval or of the Middle Ages, excuse me, scholars both within and without the Catholic Church were concerned about the effects of poisons. And that led to many church-sanctioned trials of poisons and their antidotes on convicted criminals during the Renaissance. There is a very dry and depressing book that I got through half of for this episode and then didn't finish. Um, it's called The Poison Trials, and it's about it's exactly this subject, um, how these trials were developed. And it's interesting because it tells you how these trials actually contributed to the development of the scientific method at a very, very, very early time point. Like before, we, we really thought of it being developed. But um, it is very depressing because lots of people died, unfortunately, um, in pursuit of uh, basically antidotes for rich people who were at risk of being poisoned. Now, in modern times, we have a lot of different ways to both separate and um, find out what these active ingredients are. It's much, much easier. And because of that, we have less death from trial and error. Namely, some ways to do it. Mass spectrometry has been a huge help. Um, we have better separation techniques. And we have specific models we can test on to make sure that if we do move to like human testing, that we're doing it in the safest way possible. We, based on the separation techniques that we have, we can um, basically confirm that a toxin or a chemical is nearly 100% pure. It's a little harder with biological toxins because typically they're proteins and those are just generally harder to purify, but we can do a pretty good job. And we can also verify structurally that what we have is actually what we think we have. And we can do that using a variety of methods, chemically speaking. Mass spec is one of the easiest ways. NMR is always an option. We have one of the ones that I was thinking of for proteins. But case in point, there's lots of ways. And this is actually what allows us to develop most of our small molecule drugs that stem from plants. We can use an extracted toxin or poison and do studies. And then by looking at how the mechanism of the toxin works in these studies, we can find the part of the molecule or the mechanistic reason that is poisonous and we can then modify it or make it synthetically so that we only get the benefits and we don't actually incorporate anything, any of the initial poison that would actually lead to downstream like detrimental effects. Natural toxins specifically serve as wonderful models for enzymatic small molecular inhibitors, again, like the ACE inhibitor that I mentioned earlier in the episode. And that's because generally that's the purpose of a toxin is to kind of disrupt your, cell your cellular functions. And by studying the toxin-enzyme interaction, specifically this part, their toxins do other things. We can determine what interfaces are most crucial, and we can actually adjust the drug to be more efficacious by removing 
what doesn't actually add anything to the interaction and adding in things that could be beneficial, um, medically speaking. And something that I like about this topic a lot actually is that it's very closely related to the research that I used to do in my laboratory. And toxins specifically, I'm about to get real scientific, so I apologize <laughs> in advance again. But toxins have a very unique way of getting into the cells. And they do this using something called receptor-mediated endocytosis. And this is typically the endocytosis that you learn about in like high school biology. So after it binds to a receptor on the membrane and it is endocytosed or brought into the cell, these vesicles, or they're called endosomes, gradually become more acidic as they mature. And when this happens, it causes the toxins to release from the cell receptors inside of the endosome. And when that happens, the toxin forms what we call a molten globule structure. And that essentially means, do you know anything about protein um, structure? When we talk about the folding of a protein, initially when you go from secondary structure to tertiary structure, it kind of forms this like molten globule where like it isn't organized, but like kind of is organized. And when that happens, there's usually quite a few hydrophobic, there can be not always, hydrophobic groups that are kind of along the outside of the protein because it's in this globular shape. It hasn't really fully collapsed into its most stable form. And this is particularly important for toxins because then that allows them to either fully or partially engage with the membrane of this endosome and translocate or move through out of the acidic endosome and into the cytosol where it can cause, you know, whatever it needs to bind to whatever enzyme, whatever. And it's actually the mechanism of these toxins that have allowed scientists to develop peptides that mimic the behavior. And that has revolutionized really um, quite frankly, the world of drug delivery. It's a huge topic right now. I'm um, utilizing toxin mechanisms to increase the, effic the efficacy of um, macromolecular drugs, things like DNA, RNA, proteins, so on and so forth. That was a lot. Congratulations for making it through. <laughs> in, in summary, poisons are cool when they are used effectively. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so I guess we're going to talk about um, the Sabbat now and traditional witchcraft and flying ointments and all the exciting things. Before we start talking about that, I want to ask, first of all, what do you guys think when you think of the Sabbat? Like, what, what first comes to your, into your mind? <laughs> the wheel of the year. <laughs> That's funny. For me, it's it's pretty much immediately all those, like, images um, of people just, like, there's just phalluses everywhere and yeah, yeah. old ladies and devils and all, all that good stuff that's pretty much immediately what comes to mind yeah the word devil i think is key in there um so a popular conception that remains part of some witchcraft traditions especially traditional witchcraft is that witches historically used these flying ointments that we mentioned earlier uh, these are ointments that contain psychotropic poisonous plants like nightshades in order to fly to the sabbat so here they would dance with the devil have orgiastic feasts, and in some reports, even dined on the blood of infants. The use of this ointment is contentious, but many believed that it wouldn't cause literal flight. Instead, the witch would depart from her body as she slept into the Sabbat, or some later cases claimed that um, it allowed a demon to take hold of her body. While not all of these beliefs are held by witches today, the use of flying ointments is still popular for psychomagical journey journeying, under the conception that this is an ancient practice. But I kind of want to explore how true that is, um, and like how how old this tradition actually is. Um, and I got most of my information from a book called um, The Witch's Ointment by Thomas Hatsis, which is a really good book, I would recommend it. So basically there was evidence for the use of certain toxic plants um, fairly early on. So this, as early as Discorides and Theophrastus, we had use of opium and henbane as painkillers or sleeping aids, which makes sense because these are actually active on um, as anti-muscinaric agents, so they will actually induce uh, sleep. And it's feasible that, it, you know, you can't pop a paracetamol uh, back in the day. It's a, that they would um, at least uh, act as an analgesic to some extent. I just realized that American listeners will not know what paracetamol is. <laughs> Tylenol. Um, but basically, yeah, they, they were effective painkillers in, in many senses. So there is, there is evidence for their use. Um, another um, common one would be opium poppy. I thought this was interesting because it was particularly used by midwives for using labor pains. And you can see how this might be associated with witches because there's an association between older women who are often midwives and the witch stereotype. Um, a lot of references to these exist in leech books. And if you don't know what a leech is, um, it's a healer who was somewhere between a folk healer and a physician. So 
if you were um, somewhere living in a common town in Western Europe um, in the kind of early modern period, you might not have access to a doctor or physician, but you might have access to somebody like a, a leech. There is some evidence for use um, at this stage in psychomagical journeying, but most of the time it was to induce frenzies in love filters. Um, for example, Theophrastus documents this and in the 1400s as well, as well as use um, for love filters, uh, um, to sorry, as well as a use for transmutation um, as in 1390. But at this stage, there's not really evidence of um, actual uh, flying ointments. There's the, in the early 1400s, it's pretty much used as painkillers and maybe a little bit of um, frenzy-inducing something. Yeah, so so here's some early recipes. Obviously, don't don't just go out there and start and start making them. Keep in mind the sources that these are coming from uh, and the time period that these are coming from. Uh, and I apologize to anyone who um, knows Latin because I don't. <laughs> Strap it. Okay, uh, Unguentum Populeon. It's from a book authored by Trojal of Salerno. Ointment for fever and wakefulness, henbane, red poppy, mandrake, deadly nightshade, pig fat. Also used for misbehaving children. <laughs> That's pretty... <laughs> yeah, that, that tracks. Uh, clearly medicinal in nature as described, but highly likely to have it influenced the contents of subsequent flying ointments during the witchcraft. Ungentum feralis. Uh, the Book of All Forbidden Arts, Superstitions, and Sorcery, 1475, several decades into the some parts of the witch craze. It uh, contains seven herbs. Each herb must be collected on a certain day. Heliotropum, thought to be borage, uh, sun on Sunday. Um, makes sense, heliotrope. Uh, Lunaria annua, Monday. Verbena, Tuesday. Spurge, a.k.a. Mercur Mercurialis, Wednesday. Vetch. Anthelis Barba, Thursday. Adiantum Capillus Ven Veneris, Friday. If you know a little bit of uh, Latin languages, the way that their dates of the week sound, some of those might make sense to you. Um, and then there's a seventh, we don't know, a mystery herb? Who knows? None of the above commonly considered to be psychoactive, though some have planetary con correspondences as you can probably tell, like Lunaria and Heliotropum, or were commonly used for magic and or medicine. Example, Verbena, frequently used in protection and cleansing spells. Borage is mucilaginous, which I always forget. I think I actually pronounced that correctly this time. I almost never do. So it's used for stomach complaints. Lunaria, also honesty, is often associated with the moon due to the seed pods and Monday, Monday, Mercur Mercurialis on Wednesday. Uh, perhaps the seventh mystery herb is our psychoactive component of interest, and its planetary correspondent will be Saturn, Saturday. So that one we don't know. However, the word flying ointment didn't actually appear until the 15th century. Furthermore, most of those references came from Inquisition documents. Many reports have been taken under the duress or had details subtly added to them over the years. It was clearly that over time the hysteria of the witch's ointment grew with the hysteria of the witch craze. For those of you who don't know, um, I did a whole college like semester on the witch craze and for those of you who don't know how those uh inquisitions went a lot of times so people would be saying things under under duress under torture not essentially literally and then what would happen is they would sort of build up a mythos and so then the inquisitors the later inquisitors would kind of be inquiring about these things inquiring about the sabbat inquiring about um the flying ointment because they were, there was already points that they were already looking for, and then they were looking for new information. So that's how that information gets added upon later. So with the witch crave also came witch stereotypes, as I mentioned. So these included nocturnal juring for mysterious rites, devil worship, and of course, ointments. Many of these can naturally be explained. Nocturnal journey may have represented heretic pagan sects trying to avoid the watchful eye of the church. Um, or, oh yes, the Waldensians. The Waldensians are fun. If you know anything about the witch craze, you probably, there's a little Walden, or old Waldensian church near me. I think about that. I think about the witch craze every time I look at, look at them. Devil worship may also be explained by historical associations between demons and pagan deities. And historical documents demonstrate a clear transition between references to Diana, to use of biblical figures perceived as wicked. And finally, mention the devil himself. 
Ointments may have been used for psyche magical journeying, but they were also likely to have been used for medical reasons by the woman accused as witches, lending apparent credence to the accusations of the Inquisitors. The existence of the ointment and the confession does not itself prove that it was used for such purposes, given that the confessions were often, if not always, exacted through torture. Um, so initially the use of the ointment was tangential to the witch, but it soon became a major part of con confessions and intrinsically tied to the devil. So mid-15th century, the powers of the witch ointment were now being put down to the devil rather than plants themselves. Um, so that's almost like the, the devil's the one who is inducing um the journey and the flight and the belief of the inquisitors in terms of a literal flight versus a spiritual flight of fairies a little bit i believe in like you know people malleus maleficarum Malif i never pronounced that second one correctly but that one takes a lot more literal approach to the witch craze um some inquisitors were less inclined to believe that they were actually flying but some definitely were like oh no they're actually like flying in the sky we should probably do a whole episode uh, talking about the witch craze. We should. I made, I made like 11 pages of notes on this book. Yeah. <laughs> and there's loads on, there's loads of really, really, really interesting stuff about this. Like how we should. Yeah. Yeah. They were like ridiculed for these beliefs. Like some people, like you say, they were convinced that they were actually flying. And then some people were like, no, it's definitely the devil. Like, um, because it was almost seen as like a bit, it, they were not, how do, I, how do I say this in a way that makes sense? Basically, if they were able to fly to meet the devil, that would have been um, not of God. And if they were doing something that was not of God, then that would have given kind of undue power to the witches. And so right. some people believe that, oh, no, it has to be uh, during sleep because God would never allow them to do these magical things. Like they must be possessed in the head. But then some people believe that they were physically possessed it is all very confusing but very 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 interesting what kind of sexist bullshit is that oh there's a fun um <laughs> I, I'll, I'll see if i can find it i'll make sure it gets linked in the description but there's a very fun little text-based game where it's basically you it's based in germany so those of you who don't know germany had some of the heart like the most uh devastating inquisitions in the like, obviously, people don't really think of Germany when they think of the witch trials, but, like, by devastating, I mean, like, if you got out, you were, like, marked for life, even if, like, you confessed. Like, it was nearly impossible to survive if you were accused in Germany. In other places, it was a little bit looser to some extent. And there's one where you, it's a text-based thing, and you have to try to survive the trials, and nine times out of time, you die. And if you survive, it's like, congratulations, you now have like no working legs and you're severely emotionally scarred and no one will talk to you. <laughs> even if you're, I mean, most, I'm able to say all of them are innocent, but um, even if you got out with them deeming you were innocent, you were marked for life. Uh, witch trials, crazy times. So that's um, kind of up to the mid 15th century or so. So by the 16th and 17th century, uh, there was a renewal in the witch craze. And there was also renewed interest in these ointments, although they were referring back to these historical documents, which, as we've said, were not always of the greatest quality because they were sometimes extracted, well, often extracted under torture, or sometimes they were re rewritten after church conferences where um, some of these inquis inquisitors might convene together and they might um, kind of get ideas from one another about what these ointments do. So um, science was also emerging during this time, and this is also where we begin to see sort of a splice arising between the world of the science and the magical arts. Um, indeed, the famous occultist Agrippa even alluded to this himself in a book called Uncertainties. So Johann Weyer, Weyer I apologize if, uh, to any Germans listening. Um, actually, he might have been Dutch. Oh, God. <laughs> um, anyway, he was a student of Agrippa, and he wrote a 1563 expose of the witch's ointment. Um, and it was called uh, D. Fucking hell. D. Praestigillus Demonium. It incant. Oh, fucking hell. On the tricks of demons, spellcasting, and the poisoners. I really do apologize. I didn't go to private school. Um, he documented several <laughs> previous accounts of ointments. So this included uh, from Agrippa's three books a visionary recipe mixing the juices of hemlock and henbane with opium and some additional plants not known to be psychoactive. These were named as spirit herbs. This was producing some of the earliest kind of associations between uh, spirits, psychomagical journeying, at least in the Western European um, tradition. 
And this was probably because of Agrippa's association with demonolatry as well, uh, or demon summoning, rather, demonolatry. Um, it was also mentioned in De Vegetivalis by Albertus Magnus, another magician. There were also other accounts that um, Vea mentioned. So this includes um, an ointment that has the fat of young children, the juice of parsley, aconite, cinquefoil, nightshade, and soot um, that generates wonderful visions. I think parsley is kind of interesting in here. It could be incidental, but parsley was um, frequently used as an abortive. And this might be one thing that uh, folk, folk healers often use to... Um, and, and was uh, seen as forbidden, so it might have appeared in Inquisition documents. Um, there was a second one um, in uh, a 1558 document called Natural Magic. This had wild celery, which is probably hemlock, and a very similar recipe to the one I've just mentioned. Um, and both of these were mentioned in the expose, but Weyer also contributed a recipe of his own, and there's not really any evidence for where he got this from. It included henbane, hemlock, darnel, deadly nightshade, and opium. But he hints that there are stronger preparations, um, he just doesn't mention them because he's worried that people will abuse them. He had a unique take on the effects of the drug. It wasn't purely psychological or spiritual, but it weakened the mind of the user, allowing Satan to enter one's consciousness. So this was a, a sort of great, great debate for Christian demonologists at the time, and it was a source for those seeking to condemn witches um, for cavorting with demons. So basically through these occultists and humanist positions, we were able to get... Um, a sense of the ointments, although it was obvious that there was some editorialising going on, and the recipes were not necessarily true to the originals. The addition of um, spirits into this as well was probably something new. So to summarise, early on we had um, use of these um, use of love filters, things that might cause frenzy, and possible psychomagical journeying. But probably the association with the devil was really an association with pagan gods that were perceived as demonic. Then, um, in the 1430s, 1450s, we saw demonologists, judges and inqui inquisitors reinterpreting these magical ointments and adding experiences that they gained under the duress of torture. The ointments are reinterpreted as being rubbed on sticks um, or other flying vehicles. This might have originated from folk beliefs um, about a goddess called Frigg flying on a broom. That's a little bit of a reach. Um, and the association with the devil was probably developed through um, associations between pagan deities and the, uh, diabolism or uh, demons. Towards the end of this period, the drugs within the ointments were understood to corrupt the mind and allow the influence of the devil into the user. And finally, in the mid-16th century, as we just mentioned, there was this idea of humanist visions that the accusations of witchcraft were often made against people who were deluded or mentally ill. But by writing about the ointments, um, even when they were condemning the accusations, they, they brought them to a wider audience. So occultists were able to then capitalise on these and use them. And even as late as the 1850s, um, we had occult scholars who were using these recipes um, and reporting that they made in a dream, they were, they were flying in spirits, um, they were describing wild rides and frenzied dancing. And of course, because they were these, these people in the 18 50s were culturally exposed to the ideas of the witch craze it's not it's kind of understandable right that they that they would have these visions of orgiastic flight and the devil because they had an expectation that it would take them there so you can see that over time this idea of like heresy made its way into flying ointments but wasn't necessarily there at the beginning and that's obviously kind of made its way into treadcraft. I think Fell really summed it up well by describing it as a mythos because it, it wasn't always there. Yeah, I love that we ended on a history lesson. That was great. I didn't All expect right. to go so on the history, but I, it was really interesting. It's I always enjoy learning about how things are just taken so out of context and meant like forced to mean other things. I think it's a really unfortunate tribute to maybe how the occult has been just so shunned for so many years, just simply because of fear of what people don't understand. So <laughs> that concludes um, this episode. I think we're going to stop here. And anybody have any final thoughts? I mean, I guess my final thoughts are like, even, I mean, I think this is kind of a lesson for a lot of things in like modern occultism. It's like, even if the, even if the archeology span and the history is a bit dubious, um, doesn't necessarily take away from like the power of something you know because the the mythos which i really like the way to describe 
a lot of the the witch trial documents that that is powerful um in its own its own way belief is a belief is a wild thing especially back then i think like i i'm coming at it from a little bit more of like a chemical and like a biological perspective um i think engaging in things like the poison path is really important because it really forces you to have a hand in both sides of things and that kind of completion of a circle really gives you a very balanced perspective i think on one's practice and also kind of just like spirituality in general and so i was i would encourage people to maybe not not necessarily engage in the poison path um if you're not like an herbalist and don't understand how to do so safely but it wouldn't hurt to know about it and to read about it just so that you kind of get the full picture um, and kind of understand kind of where it came from and how it's been utilized. And again, this idea that the poison path is not only harm, but it can also be used for healing and there's a balance to be achieved there. Yeah, I want to say, like, I think I've spent a lot of time supposedly trashing um, the historiography behind um, some of these ideas like the Sabbat and... Um, other use of entheogens but that doesn't mean that you you know people don't have really profound experiences on them doesn't mean that just because these sources are contemporary that they are no good like there is some evidence of psychomagical journeying and um we obviously don't know what people back in the 1400s were thinking when they were you know potentially using these medicines so it's still interesting it's still useful and it's not um invalid just because it's not historically backed but i do think it's important to not just rely on the fact that something is old as a source <laughs> because often the, um, the historiography has often kind of been dressed up in a way that makes it look more attractive than it is. Be critical about your research as always. And with that, I think we'll close it out. Um, if you haven't already, you can join our Discord server. Um, I will link it in the episode description. I actually need to go back and fix last week's because I forgot again. Classic. <laughs> Um, I will do that and it will be in the episode description um, this this week. I will make sure I'll make a note. So free to join us there. We have lots of fun discussions and you get to get involved with like server shenanigans like we had last week. We also have an Instagram, just it's test tubes and cauldrons if you want to follow us there. We typically hint about what we're going to be talking about that upcoming week um, in our posts. So you can try to guess before we actually tell you at the end of the week. Um, And yeah, we will see you next time. Have a great day, everybody.